Voices Studio presents We Are Here, an audio journey exploring Black excellence in cyber. Hosted by Ron Eddings and Chris Cochran. In the epic conclusion of We Are Here, Ron and Chris interview Congresswoman Yvette Clark. She discusses the road that led her to make a tremendous impact in the government and cybersecurity. Her actions boldly state, we are here. We are finishing up our We Are Here series, highlighting BIPOC excellence and also talking a bit about our EXIST framework that is all about promoting skills and also highlighting our framework exists, exploring human endeavors in any industry. And I'm honored to be speaking with Congresswoman Yvette Clark, representing the 9th District of New York. And for anyone that doesn't know where the 9th District of New York is, it is in Brooklyn. And you were recently appointed chair of the Homeland Cybersecurity Infrastructure Protection and Innovation Subcommittee. It's a true pleasure and honor to be speaking to you again, and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back with you, albeit we're not all in studio together, but we're in a virtual studio. So that makes it uh, great when we talk about how technology uh, enables us to keep our communications going and be there with one another throughout this pandemic. Exactly. Congresswoman, you are a Hacker Valley veteran, but for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story and what you're doing today. Let's get to it then. I'm a native Brooklynite, born and raised here in Brooklyn, New York. I came up in Brooklyn, New York in the sort of heyday of the Black experience here in central Brooklyn. Grew up right after the gains of the civil rights movement. And as a result of that, had a very rich childhood here in central Brooklyn. And that really shaped Uh, my worldview. My parents were immigrants to the United States. They got here in the 1950s. They came to Brooklyn and my brother and I were born here. I think that being born in an urban area to immigrants really, again, shaped my destiny to a large extent. I really grew up in the village that raised the child, very family-oriented community. And as a result of that, I I think that it led me on my path to to public service because I've always felt a debt of gratitude because of how I was nurtured throughout my lifetime in this neighborhood and wanting to really give back, wanting to really give back in in a myriad of ways. And it it just so happened that it led me down a path of public service that I I find very stimulating, something that I'm very passionate about. And it's all tied to, again, my life experience growing up in central Brooklyn and the many ways in which my life was touched by those around me. I know you wanted to be a pediatrician when you were younger. That sort of carries through to today. You're still helping people on a great scale. What would you say that origin is? Did did something as a child speak to you and tell you that you wanted to help people? You wanted to help kids? You wanted to help your your fellow person? What is that story? And uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. One of the first sort of professionals in the medical field that I encountered was my own pediatrician. Uh, She was a Black woman. 
And I knew that Black women could become pediatricians because Dr. Thompson was my doctor. And if Dr. Thompson could do it and she could make me feel better, then I could do it too and make sure other kids as I grew older would feel better. And so it was as simple as that. Again, that village that raised a child, Dr. Thompson was a local pediatrician. She lived in the same neighborhood. And there was, they say you can't be what you can't see oftentimes. And I can see, I could see myself being just like Dr. Thompson. Simply, simple as that. What it did do in, I guess, direct connection to my interest today is that it made me very scientifically oriented. And I actually started going down the road of STEM as a result of my my pursuit of becoming like Dr. Thompson. It wasn't until I got into undergrad, because while I was very focused on science, I was also raised in an activist household, always conscious of what was happening to and in the Black community. And having uh, been raised in that climate, again, I tell people it's right after the civil rights legislation Uh, voting rights legislation was passed in the United States. I was growing up in that climate. And in New York City, in Brooklyn in particular, we were uh, on a parallel track with what was happening in the South. In the North, it was a Black power movement. And people understood that Black communities, when I say people, residents of our community, the parents of our community realized that It would be through their efforts that the children, the young people growing up in our community would have a really strong sense of self and would uh, strive for excellence. And they did everything in their power with very limited means of demonstrating that, whether it was creating uh, museum opportunities that spoke to Black culture, whether it was establishing local organizations that reinforced Black origins and Black culture. The community really made sure that children had access to that level of culture and education. And over time, it waned, but I was a beneficiary of it. And think that all of that added together was like the perfect storm, if you will, in terms of shaping who I ultimately became as I grew into adulthood. I went away to college, but I made a commitment to come back and use my education to help others. And I I take pride in the fact that I actually did that. That's incredible to hear. It's like you have this goal and you have this life purpose to be of public service. And it always has been that case, whether it would have been the route of a pediatrician or what you're doing today. And when I think of public service, I think of seeing a journey. You see so much along the way. You see a good state. You see a bad state, the ideal state, and you know where we really don't want to go. You see the worst state. What are some, what have been some surprises along the way that were really shocking when you first stepped into the political science uh, field? And what are you really proud of that you've accomplished over this long journey? I, I, I said, Ron, that I had grown up in an activist household. My mom was a real mover and shaker. And I think my parents engaged in the community out of necessity. 
They wanted to be able to navigate the United States and create community uh, for my brother and I. They were new to the United States. My brother and I knew nothing else. We knew, of course, where my parents were from. We had visited all our lives. My parents happened to be from the, the beautiful island nation of Jamaica. But we grew up right here in Brooklyn for the most part. We were educated right here in Brooklyn to a large extent. And I think that that activism, them being engaged in, in, in pushing for change and including my brother and I, because you have to remember, I, well, I'm what you call a boom exer. I was born in the last two months of the baby boom and basically uh, came of age during with, with the Gen Xers. And I'm like in a bridge uh, generation, if you will, because we were the beneficiaries of the civil rights movement. And living in Brooklyn in a Black community, every societal issue played out in real time in our community. We had to deal with police brutality because it, it was like an X factor in Black communities as it is today, unfortunately. And we had to oftentimes come together as community to confront the brutality that many of our young guys, young families encountered. And we took, we took to the streets a lot just to make sure that folks realize that we're, we're not a doormat to be walked over. Our civil rights need to be protected and respected. And my parents would engage in, in all of that. Aside from that, my mom would build organizations, simple things like being the block association president, being the PTA president. And she didn't have a daycare, she didn't have a childcare. So I was with my mom through it all. Every now and then we'd have a babysitter, but that time was limited. It's not like she could afford to have a babysitter all the time. A good portion of my time was spent with my mom and watching her build common cause and coalition with folks, making sure that folks knew the law. She really engaged. She would organize to help other political figures in the community to be elected, get on campaigns for our local, especially Black elected officials. So it was really a way of life for me. And then an opportunity came about in the early 90s, where my mother actually was encouraged by the community to run for office. And that happened as a result of the New York City Council changing its structure and expanding the number of seats in the New York City Council. And my mom ran and, and won. And I, I worked on her campaign. And so it, it, it was almost like a, a natural progression to a large extent because it, it directly impacted my way of life and my, and my home and my family. Fast forward, because of my own parallel interests, if you will, in public service, nurtured by the way in which I was raised, cultivated to a large extent by the way that I was raised, I would go on 10 years later to run for the same seat that my mom was vacating due to term limits. And I ran for that seat with the same encouragement and support that my mom had when she ran. And, and I won. <laughs> and we became the first ever mother, first and only mother-daughter succession in the history of the New York City Council. But again, it's not like it was something that I said when I was a kid I would ever do because I was planning to be a pediatrician. <laughs> 
it, it just became, it, it was just a natural progression of my passion around public service that manifested itself. Prior to running for office, I was working in local nonprofit community-based organizations right here in central Brooklyn. I, I did a, a stint in the Bronx directing a, a, a federal program called the Empowerment Zone because I had a real interest in how communities can empower themselves to, to build community, to, you know, always chasing sort of my childhood. How can I replicate what I experienced? For other children. And I found that in, in other communities and helped to you know, construct that, help small business owners, particularly Black Latino business owners, to undergird their businesses, to expand their businesses so that they could hire young people who were looking for work, who looked just like them. All of this was a natural progression of the work that I had done. I mentioned that I went to Oberlin College. What I failed to state at that time was that I went in as a STEM student, but came out as a government public policy student. And it was just that 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 draw to the public service just kicked in overdrive when I was an undergrad. And it all came together. I had no idea at the time, but it, it, I, I guess it was my destiny. Wow. So you get that grit from your mom. We entitled this We Are Here because it's no small feat to be successful in leadership and cybersecurity technology as a person of color. I'd love to hear a story when if any other person with any less conviction were to encounter that, they might have given up. Give us a story of when you had a challenge that you had to overcome and you persevered and you climbed to the great heights that you're at today. Wow, there were so many challenges. And, and when you look back on them, a significant part of those challenges are some of the fears that you harbor yourself. And one of the things that I think was, was the ultimate challenge uh, for me was because of my close association with my mom, how others will craft a narrative about who you are. When I first ran for office, people were really just opponents, political opponents, were spreading a sort of propaganda about political office should not be bequeathed and political office, it's not, it's not a situation where a member of the city council can just give that over to their child. And, and at the end of the day, that was never the case. I had to work to earn. Now, there's no doubt that I was given the benefit of the doubt because my mom was in office, but I had to demonstrate my own chops. So just overcoming that, and, and what my mom and I would say is we find it interesting that some of our opponents would say something like this when, you know, they'll vote for a Mario Cuomo and then vote for an Andrew Cuomo. They'll vote for every Kennedy out there. And when it's male, white male in particular, the benefit of the doubt is extended beyond, whether it's a, a Bush or a Kennedy. And we, we, we were able to shatter that myth. There are going to be challenges, particularly in public service, if, if you have a modicum of empathy, if you can put yourself in other people's shoes. And I think the most challenging things are uh, establishing unity in our communities and, and so that we can maximize on, on the power we hold, but we don't wield. 
And, and, and I think that those are the challenges and constantly reminding people of what the value of the franchise is, how it, how it works in a democracy. That's an on, ongoing challenge. And, and we're beginning to win in that space. And I, you know, I think Georgia was a, a great indication of that. So I think that at the end of the day, we have a, we, we have challenges that I take personally and, and, and I stick to them with all of my passion to move us as a community. As a younger millennial, it's sometimes it's it's so easy to forget that community is so important. It sounds like your mom was a great influence of building her community and your community. And you captured that same level of influence and made that part of your goal and purpose. What are some of the commonly missed areas where we can participate with building our community? Chris and I were we built this podcast up to try to influence our community, give cybersecurity a voice. But I still think there's so much more that we can do. From your perspective, what are some of the opportunities there? I think that one of the things that we, that I was a beneficiary of that we slacked up on was education. When I say education in, in informal means and, and otherwise, and I think that 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 can be manifest more because of the technology that we have today. And so where you can find common cause with folks, when they recognize in the body politic where their power lies and, and the issues that, that we have in common, that we, we need to advance to make progress in our civil society, once we recognize that and we dedicate our time and sacrifice our time to achieving the goals of equity, justice, and fairness, we will be doing a great thing. I think that one of the things that our folks have to remember is that no one individual is stronger than the whole. And when, when things needed to, to change in, in my community, it was the parents of our community that made it change. And I'll give you an example. When I was in elementary school, our public schools were predominantly children of color, but our bureaucracy was predominantly white European. And there was always a, a, a stress, if you will, a, a, a strain between how children were being educated in the public school system here in New York City and whose values were being espoused. There got uh, to be a point where there was a confrontation about the education of Black children that came from Black educators and that were very few in the system, but recognized the inequities. They began to organize with parents. And there ultimately was a teacher's strike in New York City. It's called the Ocean Hill-Brownsville strike. And the, the, excuse me, the movement was the Ocean Hill-Brownsville movement, but there was an overall city uh, teacher strike. There had been so much organizing going on um, behind the scenes, unbeknownst to folks by these Black educators, that when the teachers union strike, the, 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 the Black parents in our community walked into the classroom and began to continue to teach us. There were independent Black schools that popped up to supplement so that we would not miss out on our education. And 
As a result of that, there was a cohort of students that went to school during that period of time that were very successful in their education and beyond. And so when those family members realized that that they had common cause in educating their children, they moved mountains to get that done. Many of them sacrificed their own careers to get it done and sacrificed threats from their employers and, and a whole host of other things. My mother actually changed her profession as a result of that. She started out in the private sector in banking. My mom came to the United States and became an, a, a, as an accounting student. And I tell people, if she did not have this passion for service, she, she might be the, the head of a bank today. Who knows? But at the end of the day, she essentially said, you know what, I'm going to learn more about the education of children and went on to become a very prominent educator of, of early childhood in our city prior to even being elected to the city council. So it was that level of sacrifice. And, and if I were to share with you what I think are areas that can that millennials should be organizing around, it's the same issues. Because particularly during COVID-19, our kids are going to need help. They're going to need a lot of help. And you are a large generation, just like the boomers were. So therefore, you have many more in terms of population to make that change. If you can come together around Common Cause, get behind the folks in Congress that are trying to pass this rescue plan, follow what is taking place politically at your state and local level to make sure that the equity agenda that is being espoused by President Biden and Vice President Harris and many of us in the Congress make sure that it is equitably applied in your communities, you will make the difference because I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've experienced it. And I've been a beneficiary of it. And and many in the South can say the same about the civil rights movement and the sacrifices that people younger than millennials in that stage, children, teenagers, the sacrifices they made to confront Jim Crow. That's what the millennials need to take note of. And they're quite as capable of doing that. And then some of what I found about millennials, unlike my generation and the generation before us, is that you all have already built coalitions. So it's not while it's led by our lived experience, you've been able to establish a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational movement that, that needs to be maintained until we, we get some victories. And right now we're in a struggle. People forget very quickly and conveniently all of the Black Lives Matter protests And they want to box in Black Lives Matter into simply, and it's not simply, but it it is not exclusively a police brutality uh, movement. Black Lives Matter in tech, Black Lives Matter in communications, Black Lives Matter in healthcare, Black Lives Matter economically. And so the equity agenda is so critical. And I think we're on the precipice of getting there, but we just can't get divided and we've got to continue to organize around it and and keep people focused on it. And I think we'll be triumphant. So it's really about using all of the tools at your disposal 
to be able to make sure that you can make progress in our civil society, because that is ultimately the determinant of our qualities of life. When you talk about these movements, you talk about these coalitions, and you even talk about education, at the very center of that is technology. It's so easy to start a movement these days, to, to gather people together, to, to march forward on a, a cause that's specific to them and for society writ large. But also you can use technology for your own education beyond just looking at the videos and looking, reading the material, you can reach out to, to mentors. Back in the day, you had to write a letter and send exactly. a letter and, and, and people would have to respond or not respond. But today you have access to all of these brilliant people all around the world, not even in just the United States. How important is mentorship for you? And what do you think uh, the, the people of today should utilize technology for in mentorship? Absolutely. And I think I alluded to that in my comments. We were doing things initially by physically having to be in the same room, eyeball to eyeball. Now you can do it over Zoom. Now you can do it over all these different uh, video platforms. That's a tool. The internet overall, you can share information, you can share screens, you can fact check in real time so that no one's pulling the wool over your eyes. And once again, there's a consensus. Committing to advancing the agenda is the most important piece. And sustaining that movement is one of the challenges, as you rightly stated, is is that we didn't have the capability uh, to really uh, sustain things as long as we needed to. Because once we were figured out, once we achieved certain goals, I think there was a responsibility of sort of the boomer generation to pass on that information of how it was done and why it was done to the next generation. The next generation essentially became beneficiaries, which that's Gen Xers moving into millennials, without really knowing the struggle and why they they already had access. The, The other thing is that we didn't sustain it long enough to uproot the inequities. So the default was to mistreat, miseducate, and do everything to regain a status quo that was rooted in white supremacy. And here we are today fighting those battles once again because it was we were undermined in so many different ways, particularly in our local and state legislatures where we didn't continue to organize amongst our neighbors around the franchise and how powerful that is. We, we had examples of it. We had victories. And then we coasted, if, I, if you will, lulled into a sleep, thinking that democracy is a spectator sport when the only way that we ultimately gain the, the level of, of respect and diversity and inclusion in our nation is when we insert ourselves into the scenario, if you will, when we don't take no for an answer and we check and verify all that is said rhetorically to see what its practical applications have been. And we, we lost some ground as a result of that. The good thing about a democracy is that you can course correct. And the period of time that we're in right now is a ripe time for a course correction. And, and that's my hope. And that's what I'm fighting for in Washington is, is, is really getting the type of course correction that will endure for generations, which is what we need. 
And speaking of course correction, technology can serve as a great benefit for us, but sometimes it can also be somewhat of a detriment. We've seen situations where people use technology to spread false words, and this happened not too long ago. But ultimately, I believe that technology can give us great power. What are some things that you're focused on to make sure that technology stays safe and we're using technology in the right way? There's so much that needs to be done in that space. We can do a whole program on that. But one of the things that I've been really focused on is AI and algorithmic bias. The infrastructure around the internet, the platforms that are provided, the apps that we use. We're consumers, fortunately, just by virtue of how our economy has been rigged. And we need to break that up because at the end of the day, when all of the the sort of ecosystem of the technological world is predominated by one group of people, you're subject to whatever bias and discrimination they bake into the products that they're creating, the products that we're consuming. And as a result of that, we can be easily manipulated. There's a massive education that needs to take place and needs to be continuing education. And that's around how we interface with technology, what that means in terms of how we are, how we're depicted, and what we need to demand of all of these platforms and companies in terms of diversity and inclusion. Because we could inadvertently perpetuate or deliberately perpetuate the type of racism and discrimination that we face in the uh, physical world, if you will, in the virtual world, which is our avatar. And they know who we are. We know who we are. But our behaviors and how our behaviors online connect with the motives of the various technology companies is another thing. And how that then gets interpreted into how we are, are accessing True information is another thing. And so there's a lot of work uh, that needs to be done in the tech industry. It's it's ever-evolving, fast-moving industry. Things become antiquated very quickly in this space. So there's always an opportunity to fit in, to get in and fit in. And and there's always an opportunity for these platforms and and these companies to, to change their ways. We have to demand it because we ultimately make them or break them. And we have to determine how we do that. That starts with education. That starts with understanding and knowing what what the technological industry is all about and how they are using our data, our online habits to monetize things to their benefit. There's a lot to unpack in the tech space. And like I said, we can do a whole other podcast just on that. (laughs) But civil rights uh, online is is the next frontier. And I'm looking forward to taking that up in both my capacity as the chair of cybersecurity and the, the subcommittee on cybersecurity and my position on the energy and commerce committee in the House of Representatives that has oversight for tech. There's someone listening right now 
that is filling that pull. They're listening to your story and they're feeling inspired and they feel like that they can do greatness just because they see it in you. What is that piece of advice that you have for that person that's listening, that's about to embark on their own personal journey? Follow your passion. There's nothing more rewarding than getting up in the morning and loving, loving what you do. And so don't give up on your dreams. Sometimes you you will get to where you need to be through a circuitous route. It's not, there are very few that are actually shooting stars in life. You can be a rising star as opposed to a shooting star. Shooting stars die out just as quickly as they, they emerge. You want to be in this following your passion and, and, and looking for opportunities that, that, that present themselves. If it's not exactly your dream, maybe it's look for someone who has a dream that's similar to yours. Surround yourself with ambitious people. They may be in different fields than the one that you want to go into, but they will help drive you as you pursue your passion. And, and that's what I would say. That's exactly what I did. We started this podcast today where we talked about my view to being a pediatrician. What that passion did or, 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 or that dream did was it made me become a STEM student. And, and you know what that did? It merged with my passion for activism and for policymaking so that when I meet with scientists, I'm not totally, they're not totally speaking a language that I don't understand. I still remember all of my formative years learning the fundamentals of, of physics and chemistry and bio. When, when people talk about the COVID-19 virus, I, I'm pretty clear on how that vaccine was developed and why it works against the virus. It, 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 all of it came together because I was passionate about it. And, and now I'm doing policy to make sure that these vaccines are distributed, that my community, which was extremely hard hit, remember New York City was the outbreak epicenter. And I lost so many neighbors, friends to this virus and, and know so many, I don't think there's a person who lives in Brooklyn that doesn't know or is not a family member of someone who lost someone dear to this virus. So I'm out here almost like a televangelist telling people, take the vaccine. We got to get to herd immunity and quit. Listen, you got a choice. You could either throw the dice and get the virus and maybe survive it, or you can take the vaccine and have at least 70 to 90% protection from it. So bringing it full circle, I'm passionate about health policy, though I'm not a doctor, nowhere near it, but I understand the basic concepts. Education is key. I'm a lifelong learner. I don't know everything. I don't know everything, but when I'm passionate about it, I'm going to learn as much about it as I can so that I can deliver for the people that are my passion that in this, because it's a labor of love for me, the, the, this neighborhood, I'm sitting in the house right now talking to you on a, at a podcast, that, a house that my parents bought when I was born. That's how deep it goes for me. They're my landlord. Wow. wow. That's incredible. 
Congresswoman, thank you so much for hopping on the mics and giving us a masterclass on excellence. For folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the brilliant things you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? They can follow me on my social media at Rep Yvette Clark. They can also sign up for my newsletter, which is on my website at clark.house.gov. Great. And I'd highly recommend everyone to follow you on Twitter and stay up to date with all the things that you're working on. It's always a great pleasure to speak with you, and hopefully we get to do it again sometime soon. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Chris and Ron, thank you for having me.